This is the Change Africa podcast where we meet young, old, brilliant, wonderful people, thinkers, innovators, writers, artists, just the whole bunch of amazing Africans who are thoughtfully creating the future of the continent. And today we have another episode where we're going to be dissecting the life, the perspectives of a young, brilliant writer who has a very interesting story to tell us about his writing journey his process of writing his use on several crucial african issues and his individual story today we have david aj Yaboa with us i'll start by introducing david um reading his profile he is a young creative from accra ghana that believes in expressing gotten raw energy onto plain paper he believes art is sacred and should be expressed with utmost care beauty and craftsmanship that as artists our responsibility to pen humanity at its rawest to channel empathy to understand people from diverse backgrounds and translate this to writing injecting our pieces with such warmth and truth and that people matter and that stories matter and africa stories must be told lucidly He's a first-class honors graduate of the University of Ghana, studied English, he enjoys art in all its intricacies, and loves to express himself through words and music. He has his works published or forthcoming in Prazis magazine for us and Literature African Writer Magazine, the Kahalari Review, Ice Flow Press, Writers Project, Ghana Journal, A Voice is a Voice, Resistance Issue by the Contemporary Ghanaian Writer Series. He has long, he's been long listed for the totally free best of the bottom drawer global writing prize 2021. And he's currently pursuing a master's degree in communication studies at the University of Ghana. David is 26 years. He's a curious mind. He's set on conquering the world through his rich storytelling and writing. His first full length hybrid and experimental collection is called Kissing Memory into Skin. It explores mental trauma identity, gender, and sexuality, fat phobia, sensuality, and adventure. It explores poetry, prose, commentary, and it's meant to be a book of hope, healing for the downtrodden in the modern society. This introduction deserves a round of applause. Let's welcome David Ajayabwa to the Change Africa podcast. David, you're welcome to the Change Africa podcast. Thank you so much for having me. That was a really like startling introduction and I'm grateful to be here. Thank you so much for inviting me. Yeah. So David, you I'm reading your book. Um Daniel has read your book. We're both reading it. And for me, what stands out to me when I started writing, one of the things that I enjoyed about writing the most was the experimental approach the quite unconventional approach and when i read your book that is what i see it's almost like 
a book that is trying to break all the writing rules. It, it's, it's, it doesn't seem to adhere to the rules of structure or specific storytelling. It doesn't seem to sit in a box of either prose or prose poetry or narrative fiction or non-fiction. So, I mean, the readers, the audience, um, the listeners, they don't know what I'm talking about. Hopefully, as we go on, we're going to explore that. But what are you trying to achieve in this book is my first question to you. Okay. Um, so thank you for this question. I, when I began my writing journey, so I began writing when I was young, like as a lot of writers do, I began writing by, um, 10, 9, 11, after reading lots of Pokemon and all of that began writing. But then, so since then, I, I started out writing prose and then I switched to poetry and it backtracked. So senior high school, I, I, I wrote as well. But then the thing um, that happened was that as I finished my degree in English, I began taking writing more seriously. It had been a hobby. So I began taking writing more seriously as a, as a career, just trying to um, immerse myself into my craft. And what I realized is my writing style was different. And it was something that haunted me because I felt like I wasn't like the people I was reading. I wasn't like... Who I wasn't like Abuno. I loved their work, but I realized I wasn't like them. So I, I remember even speaking to my lecturer once and telling her, I feel like I don't fit in. I feel like my writing is in many ways unconventional and it does its own thing. And she told me that why let people, why judge my work on its own? Let people just accept or let people just, you know, accept or um, assess it on their own standards and not have to put a cap on how it's perceived and so it inspired me to just keep on in this journey but then the more I kept writing the more I realized how different I was so I guess it reached a point I was like yeah this is me I'm just going to be myself because I tried to fit in I, I honestly did because when I began writing I started you know um, assessing competitions and seeing how things go so I'd you know, just look up competitions, read up work by the winners of these competitions. And I'd see that the way I write is completely different. And I tried, I tried to write like them. There's a, there's a, there's a kind of wave that African writing is uh, moving at the, at this, at this time. And I just realized that it still didn't fit in no matter how hard I tried. So I finally decided that I'll just be myself and just let the art create itself and let the book write itself. Because this book, I began writing it in 2020 during the pandemic. And so it first began with just prose and bits of commentary and bits of poetry. But then over time, it evolved. And so I just decided that, so to answer your question, I just decided that the book will be what it wants to be. And I'll just accept that. I'm an unconventional writer. I'm an experimental writer. And I guess that's my genre, you know. It, so to add context, as well, when I was in school, I read about people like Nicanor Para. I read about people like Pablo Neruda. You know, there's this line in one of their poems where he says that young poets um, do what you want to do. Too much blood has gone under the drain. There's so much um, to do in, you know, literature. One can do so much more, you know, in literature and not be limited so these were poets that heralded the anti-poetry movement. So I just decided that these are people I admire and this inspired me to just just be myself, I guess. So that's that's I guess my journey of experimentalism, if you if you so may say, yeah. I think that's a brilliant answer. 
what I picked out from there is that you're going to let the story write itself. What does the story writing itself feel like? So a story writing itself means when you like when you get to the blank paper, you just bleed. I think you read in my intro that I bleed out on raw paper. So that's that's the idea. So when I begin writing, when I begin my drafting stages, I just write out of the stream of consciousness. So a lot of a lot of times the the, the stories that are in this collection, they are they came out of stream of consciousness i feel like my characters speak to me and it's most of it is fictional but then i most of the times when i sit to write i feel like characters speak to me and saying this might seem strange right but then i think i remember i i listened to something chimamanda said where she she felt like her character spoke to her as well so i mean i remember listening to that and i felt validated by you know her saying that so by letting the book write itself is by just opening yourself up to just express yourself and not be limited by okay it was done this way so let me do it this way or okay it was done that way let me do it that way it's just allowing yourself to be free enough to let the writing speak for itself free enough to just flow and like a river just lapping onto the ocean just lapping onto the you know the, the bare sand and just being free so that's what it is for me yeah no i i really understand what you mean you know because I feel like that's how my writing, if I decide to write, it comes out. It's almost like th- there is this very old notion of how there's a concept of a muse. So mm-hmm. in traditional Greek writing, even for the philosophers that existed, they didn't like to attribute their wisdom, their writing, their almost genius um, philosophizing of the world to a certain knowledge from within but without because they felt like they were encapsulated in the moment by some muse, some external mm-hmm. spirit that would capture them and almost like manifest them and through the manifestation would come all these ideas and things, right? Yeah. So I, I, I understand what you mean. It's almost like you are hearing someone tell you to write this thing and you are just exactly yeah, exactly you're just like the, the vessel exactly. you're just a vessel exactly so let's start from um high school um okay you went to you went to Achimota, and I know you said you some of this work is fiction but I think that there's some glimpses of it is that uh what what was it like trying to navigate the path of a career for you from high school or maybe even further back? What was it like? Were you always okay. sure or unsure? Because obviously I know that when you came to the university, you, you, you did a couple of things. I, I want to, um, you to unveil the journey that brought you there. Okay, okay. So um, I think my journey began in, I think, class six when we had... Um, so I think I wrote some essays, like you usually do in exams for your English, you know, paper. And we had, um, a teacher, like a private tutor who used to come around. And so one day he came around, he was reading some of my papers and he was like, wow. Um, he was even teaching my brother at the time, not me, my elder brother. And he just chanced upon these papers. And when he read them, he, he, he was impressed. He thought, oh, wow, this, this is great. You're so young and you're writing this well. So I remember those were the little seeds that he, you know, implanted that okay maybe I could do this but if I'm being honest I never considered myself a writer till 
2020. I never claimed the word writer. And I've now learned that there's power in claiming and there's power in, you know, claiming who you are. I never claimed that title. So all through um, high school, you know, you, I remember when I was in Atlanta school, my first paper, English paper, we wrote in Form 1 or SHS 1. My English teacher, you know, she, she, she singled me out, out of everybody. And she told me to read my essay in front of the class. So those, you know, you should be able to pick up on these little signals and feel like, okay, this is something that I should be doing. But I guess I never claimed that title, even though people like my classmates would come around, read my papers and think, oh, this is great. I just never assumed a writer artist title. And looking back, I, I don't know whether it's my insecurity, which is something I explore in the book as well. But, um, but then I never claimed that title till, um, I realized I was, I think I was in 2020, I was filling out some application forms for school abroad. And then I was supposed to write an essay. So you'd write your personal statements or, um, yeah. And during that, I began writing creatively because there was a section you had to, you know, write or introduce some creative elements to your writing. And that's when I realized, oh, this this thing is, is is deep is deep within me. It's time I claim it. It's time I assume that title. It's time I like go out into the world and begin pursuing opportunities, you know, in line with that. And so I feel like my journey as a writer, it's been one of uncertainty. It's been one of what's the word? Um, not claiming who I felt all along that I was. But I've learned over time, ever since I claimed, yes, I'm a writer, whether people assume or think I'm great or not, I am a writer fundamentally. And ever since I claimed that title, I feel like I've stepped more into the role. Ever since I claimed it, I'm more open to opportunities. I'm more interested in craft because I've assumed that title. So that's been my journey so far. It's been a journey of finally accepting who I believe that God made me to be. Yeah, so that's it. Yeah, so you came to the University of Ghana, but you did initially study yeah. English. Yeah. What did you study? Why did you study that? And what made you make a switch? Okay, so so um my 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 journey is interesting. Um so I, I began after high school, after senior high school, I after senior high school, I joined, I was, sorry for the breaks, um, I was enrolled in KNUSD to study law, right? Because, I mean, I was, I did well in high school and I was bright. Um, so everyone recommends, oh, yeah, bright, do, you know, do law. So that's what I did. I, without even thinking of, do I really want to do this? But it felt like the, the most sane path to do. I mean, if you are a smart person, just do law. And you're in the arts, just do law. And so I went to KNUST for a semester. I went there for a semester. And I remember um, when I began, I began picking up that this wasn't it for me. It didn't make sense, but I felt like this is not my path. It just didn't seem right. And I came back, I left, I left, um, I think first semester I came home and I told my parents that no, this is not what I'm going to do with my life. I'm not going to be a lawyer. I do not want to be a lawyer. So, and mind you, I didn't particularly know exactly what I wanted to do, but I just knew that this isn't it. It's that feeling we get when it's like it's a red flag and you feel like this isn't the path. So I remember I came back and when I came back, um, 
there was a lot of tension, of course, because your parents would expect that after getting a great opportunity to, you know, do law, you should pursue it. But then after this tension, I mean, I decided that, mind you, after I made this decision, like everybody told me this was the wrong decision. My friends told me this was the wrong decision. The whole world told me this was the wrong decision. So I decided, okay, I'm going to do, I'm going to, like, I, I so during that period, that was, um, I left in, first semester so between first so i left second semester but then i was thinking about it like over the break so during that period i was at home um trying to figure out my next move right and that's when um i couldn't continue because i didn't write exams with my mates so i had to because i was figuring trying to figure things out and so i decided to just switch you know to leg on and when I decided to switch to Legon, I decided to pursue, I chose, I think I chose psychology, English, and theater arts, because that's what I felt that I should do after thinking carefully about it. I felt a strong desire to do, you know, to pursue the arts. And so I decided to, I filled out the forms and everything, but I felt so much pressure to listen to people. I felt so much pressure to listen to, I felt I had made the biggest mistake of my life. I felt like my life was over. So I decided to just, um, listen to people again and I applied to Legon to I switched at the last minute like you know there's a, there's a period where you can't switch I switched at the last minute to law and so I got in in Legon to study law again so that was my second year not second year but then when my mates went second year in KNUSD I was like in first year in Legon supposed to study law and it was I was miserable I mean because <laughs> If it's not something that's meant for you, if it's not something that's your path, you will be miserable. So I was very miserable and I just reached a zenith. I just reached a point where I said, okay, this, this, this is enough. I'm just going to pursue what I want to do. And, um, whatever happens, happens. If I perish, I perish, but I'm going to bank on my dreams. I'm going to bank on what I want to do. And so I decided to switch to, um, English, theater arts, and political science. Very unconventional path. Very, very unconventional. And pretty dumb for, and from people's perspectives because people felt I'd made a really silly decision. But I didn't care because what's life living in people's shadow or what's life living to please others when deep down you are, you know, struggling or struggling to keep up or you lack passion? And I placed a high premium on passion. So I decided to do English and yeah, and it was an amazing four years for me. Those four years were amazing. Those four years I got to meet amazing people. Those four years I got to sink deep into the things I loved. And so English and theater arts are quite, you know, they go together and they go together. So I was able to study not just um, poems, I was able to study stories like short stories, novels and theater as well. And please, so it was an amazing um, period for me, and I honestly felt like I made the right decision. Though people didn't feel that way because it felt right, it was the right path, and and here we are. So, and so what I what I'd like to you know add to this is I've always felt like if you follow your heart, you know, people make statements you know about following your heart. It doesn't put food on the table and all of that, but you have a lot of peace. 
doing what you, you you love and for me i place a lot of premium on passion and so when you are able to follow that passion you can't be able to milk it to make money you can't be able to do something great out of it because what's making money if you are miserable every day and you dread going to work and you dread doing what you do just to make ends meet this is a very nuanced topic but i think all that all that i'd just like to say is it worked for me because it paid off. I had a really high GPA graduating because of this, because I was able to pursue my passion and because I was able to do what I felt was right in my situation. So this is a very long response to, what, to your question. Yeah. Yeah. What do you feel gave you the courage to finally go into that part that you feel like was always meant for you? What gave me the courage? I was miserable. Misery. It was misery. Um, I, I keep listening to messages of late. I've been listening to messages, you know, from Oprah and people who have made impact in the world. And I'm a Christian as well. And so um, I I really believe in following your heart and the desires of your heart. Um, she, Oprah said something. She said, life comes to you in whispers your heart whispers to you your direction your heart whispers to you your path and sometimes when you don't listen you get into a storm and it's a raging storm and it rages so hard then you are forced to listen you shouldn't always have to come to a place where you are in a storm before you listen and so there were those little those subtle things you know you're, you, you should be able to use your life as a lesson you know um in all your endeavors moving forward. So for me, there were there were little bits, little pieces that I could have picked up on. You know that I didn't have to just follow the path people wanted me to take just because I had aptitude, but I had to follow the path that my heart wanted. Because in high school, I excelled because I did an artistic course. And um, when I was in high school, I had an I had a math teacher that kept saying that, oh, you should join the elective math class. You should join the elective math class. You are great at math. But I knew that was not where I was supposed to be. I was supposed to be in a class that studied literature, history, you know, e economics and government and not elective math and, and other courses that were not my path. So I should have, I could have picked up on these little signs to follow my path. Or when I was in KNUSD once and I felt like this wasn't my path. I should have just followed the path. But it took misery. It took listening to people and being miserable. It took being at rock bottom before I was able to like, okay, I've had enough. Let me do what I really want to do, which I think is a learning lesson and it's great. But I feel like it's a lesson for everybody that when those times come and in those times, you sense deeply you should be doing something. And a lot of times, it will not make sense to do those things. You need to be bold and listen to those little whispers of your heart. Those little things that are nudging you in a particular direction. Because that's where the blessings are. Those parts will, will not always be easy. But that's where the blessings are. And so for me, what it took was misery. What it, what it took was being at rock bottom. So that's that's the answer to your question. You're writing now. You are exploring these themes, these themes that are mostly not focused on in the African writing, you know. I mean, there are a crop of writers that are trying to uh, give prevalence to them, but sexuality, gender identity, mental trauma, all of that. Why, why those things? Is it something that 
you have an inclination for an experience for and how did you especially in the context of letting the writing write itself get in tune with that okay um so um as a as a i'm very interested in um gender which is sort of what's the word because i feel like um if i had if 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 i had a daughter and if my best friend had a son and his son and my daughter were working at an, at an institution and my daughter was being paid less that's not cool just because she's a woman or something so i've always been interested in these conversations and the book in many ways is not a book it's not an advocacy book but it's a call to empathy it's a call to empathy for people who are going through mental trauma it's a call to empathy for people who are struggling so many um or struggling from so many issues that they can't speak about in public i i see that my writing is supposed to unveil what happens in the dark and to just present these characters so we can have a conversation you know about these things and so like globally even in ghana mental health is a serious issue where mental health is not always as someone okay um it's not always someone being struggling from um bipolar that we speak about which is very important but it's also in the little things such as anxiety it's also in um depression it's it's very complex and i felt like for example in ghana when miss v had um voiced out that she was um depressed i didn't like the narratives that were being presented i didn't like the way when she went on certain platforms they just wanted her to snap out of it and it was very troubling to me how mental health was depicted or how the conversations were going and so i felt like let me create characters to, to just bring conversation that you know it's a journey and we all need to get help i'm christian right and being in the christian space one of the things that berates me as a christian is that and we my faith or we genuinely feel that if you have mental if you're struggling depression or anything just pray it away or or it will just get better or just snap out of it sometimes it even happens in those circles but you know the conversation that even christians need therapy and when i mean therapy not just from counselors but from psychologists and psychiatrists we need therapy as well when you're going through different issues modern life has come with so many you know challenges and so many problems people are going through so many people are going through hard times in their bedrooms they're crying their eyes out in their bedrooms they're crying their eyes out in the dark they're crying their eyes out when nobody's looking everybody's smiling it's something i explore in the book we paint a picture that everything is all right we paint a picture that things are fine but things are not and as a society we need to be more empathetic to these things we need to be more understanding of these things we need to be more embracing of people that are in struggle so we can lend a helping hand so we can tell them you can get help it would get better and so that's 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 one of the reasons why i explore some of these things and these things are literally like a big deal to me because people genuinely need an outlet and i feel like creating a book that can create a conversation so we can get people to heal and in the catharsis create a conversation and a community of people that heal together i think that would be a great idea yeah yeah hello david daniel here um 
Yeah, I have a question. I mean, I can see okay. that increasingly the topic of mental health is being discussed. When I say increasingly, I'm especially talking about the Ghanaian context where it seems to okay. slowly come up. And um, you made mention okay. when you're talking about modern life. And for me personally, okay. what I'm sometimes kind of missing is people, when the discussion comes to mental health, people okay. talk about the state and what needs to be done, for instance, or what the person should do at that stage versus also sometimes it's kind of some of it comes from the modern life we live or certain aspects of life we have i mean even even when okay. i listen to you for instance the pressure of society was pushing you down a path that you not necessarily that you deep down you knew you should not pursue so yeah now already you may be staying on that path for longer could already put you in a situation where you will have i mean you already described yourself that as miserable at that time, but it could push you down further down a line that could now cause, for instance, some mental issues or some uh, deeper anxiety that you could have. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. So my question to you in your dis in your descriptions and your discussions, how much of a focus is also maybe on underlying societal causes and not just the individual aspects of uh, mental health? Okay, so the underlying societal conditions. Um, yes, so, so the part society has to play, is that what you mean? Yeah, exactly. And maybe also a discussion on certain things or expectations that then cause mental health going forward. Okay, 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 okay. Um, so I think, I believe that as a society, <laughs> I believe as a society, um, there's a lot of stifling right there's a lot of stifling and going on in society where um people people feel they cannot be what they want to be because there's a lot of stifling going on and for so for like i mentioned to so in my case because of society and because of expectations of okay you are this way go that way or you are that way go that way it stifles a lot of people from expressing what's really, you know, going on within them or what's troubling them or because of the pathways. I, I, I like to say people, everybody's different and we all have different paths and we all sense that we have different paths. But everybody, because of prevailing societal conditions, we, we mostly seem to be dancing to the beat of the same drum. You know, we seem to be dancing to the beat of the same drum. And like I mentioned earlier that modern society has come with a lot of stress. There's, there's a lot of stress in modern society as well. And this plays a heavy role. Like even in schools, in schools, there's a lot of depression in schools. So when I was in, I'm almost done with my master's degree, right? But you now I was just reading statistics that there are lots of students that are very depressed in school. There are lots of students that are very broken and just can't seem to grapple with what they are you know dealing with in school and um, dreading every day you know because of the pressure in school and there's just lots of pressure at work and coupled with personal issues so there are problems everywhere basically right modern society comes with a lot of problems and i feel like this also puts a lot of pressure and lots of trauma on lots of individuals globally in ghana as well so i have friends that in 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 university as well we're going through lots of pressure and it affected them mentally right 
and so i think the discussion should basically i think it should foreground the idea that because modern society comes with a lot of issues we should be able to as a society um encourage right encourage people to um seek out avenues for therapy encourage and it's it's very important to me because i don't just write about this because it's characters there are also bits and pieces of me because as a writer you don't just write out of a vacuum right you write out of experiences and things like that so the things that i went through as well it came with a lot of sadness and depression because i know what it feels like to be to be depressed i know what it feels like to to feel the pressure of societal expectations and to feel like and to feel like you are not meeting those expectations and i and i and i want to stress that as a society we need to come to a place where we can encourage people to seek redress you know in these issues encourage people to seek help encourage people to seek out that journey of healing because that's what the book is about it's a journey of, or an exploration through healing so that at the end of the day as we discuss these these issues these topical issues as we delve into them the meat of the matter we are able to get healing as a society to move forward and coping mechanisms as well to move forward you know so that's that's what i would like to say you know to that okay but you see in um even in terms maybe now when you look from a societal aspect there was a part in your in the in the book when it came i think to, okay. the, fat, to the fat phobia i think uh, that was rounded and yeah um, yeah there was a sentence where you say enforcing persistent expectations of hedonism yeah and, mm-hmm. and um of course you're right somebody would have to i mean if you experience certain pressures expectations you probably have to seek see where you can seek um help but my question is going also um some of these um expectations from a societal uh mm-hmm. viewpoint are just mm-hmm. unsustainable which i basically mm-hmm. lead into mental health issues if you mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. for many mm-hmm. people so th- my question yeah. is somehow yeah. when do we tackle uh, when do we tackle or question certain aspects of that modern life or that kind of expectation and how do we bring out that conversation not only on the individual level when it has come to let's say a mental health issue but beforehand like yeah how does one address that or trying to change certain aspects okay okay i think change change starts now change starts now but change is also incremental it takes time so the thing about fat phobia and because it is linked to a lot of mental health you know when people people when people have a lot of mental health issues and they have to take meds it comes with side effects as well which have to deal with weight gain and things like that people women you know struggling from things such as pcos have to deal with weight gain and and so i feel like the time is now to discuss these issues while i i must say that i don't think society will change immediately it would take a while and it starts with a ripple right it starts with a drop then a ripple and it moves and it moves and it winds deeper and deeper for there to be collective change right so even the whole discussion about mental health and even fat phobia so fat phobia has even mostly been explored from um femi- not feminist but from a female perspective right but then like i 
like I say in the book, in which we're even discussing societies or societal restrictions, society muffles a man from speaking. Society muffles a man from speaking about certain issues, which it would not deem as macho enough. So you would hardly have conversations about men speaking about not feeling comfortable in their body because they might be struggling with gain and because of societal expectations. You know, because there's there's the female beauty standard, but there's also the male beauty standard as well, which plagues a lot of men in silence. And so to, to answer your question, change starts now and it's incremental and it takes discussions such as these to spread the awareness for broader conversations to be had so that People could be conscientized. Um, it's not going to be easy. There's always going to be tension because there's no um, advancement or there's no progress without tension. There will be tension. But then change starts now and starts with discussions like these to um, conscientize people. And we must be willing to allow time to um, be a help. Yeah. You said something in one of your writings. Um, you said that my soul is growing breasts and curves, so bro. Um, that's a very powerful imagery. What is your perspective, you know, in line with the conversation you're having right now with maybe from your personal perspectives or from the character perspective of your, uh, of your writing? This, conversation of men's bodies, men's personalities, and how men can be feminine in a way that is not accepted according to, or not expected according to societal um, normalcies, and how people have dealt with that and the struggles that comes with that. Okay. Okay. So it's a heavy topic to discuss, which is why I would like to highlight again that the book is a call to empathy. It's a call to um, say that you may not understand why someone acts the way he does or why someone makes certain decisions, but you, you can all agree that you can empathize with someone like that. You, you can, you should not, I'll not even say can, you should empathize with people that are not like you. So, um, this whole discussion about, you know, men, femininity and things like that, growing cares, breasts, whatever. Um, the message I want to put forth in the book, right, is that let's as a society come to a place where we can have conversations with certain people. Um, why is it that the automatic reaction to people like that is, oh, let's beat them, let's stone them, let's hurt them? That's not how we move as a society. So when you meet someone that's completely different from you, someone that doesn't think like you, someone that doesn't have the same experiences as you, you ostracize, and that's wrong. So basically, I just want to highlight you know or foreground the idea that it's all about empathy it's all about being okay i i don't particularly understand where you're coming from but can i bring a chair can i sit beside you can we have a conversation can i get to understand your perspective even if it's at variance with mine even if we get to a point where we feel like we can agree to disagree right can we do that amicably you know that's that's where i come from okay so let's come back to art what is the duty of the artist? And also, what 
I mean, I asked this question in part before, but what is the duty of the artist? So it's a duty of the artist to reflect the times. One thing I'm learning about art is art is not only a reflection of, you know, um, life. It's also a construction of reality. So we don't just reflect what we see, but I learned art can also construct, right? Art can also be revolutionary. Art can change things. And so I feel like it's the responsibility of the artist to be able to present narratives or present art that connect with people and that transforms their mindsets in a positive manner. So we have people, you know, we have journalists, we have musicians, we have singers, we have dancers, we have actors who are able to create or make art that connects with people that, you know, gives them respite and catharsis. But then for me, I feel like it's the artist's job to construct reality, to change things and to change the way things are perceived in society, to stir the waters, to, you know, make people, if slightly uncomfortable to change things, do so, yeah. So that's what I think it is, yeah. So let's talk about one of the themes in your book. Um, Okay. One of the things that you explore in your book is longing. Um, okay, yeah. Maybe it's not thematic in it's not thematic in your description, but you sort of go back into what seems like memories of the past of your interactions with your grandmother um, and all of that. And I know some of those things are fictitious, but how does that longing, how do you channel the longing into your writing? And how do you channel a longing for something that is yet to be experienced too? So I guess the intersection of a longing of the past, but also a longing of what is yet to be experienced. And how does that collate into the writing that you do? Okay, so... Thanks for that question. I think um, so. The, the thing, the thing about longing and writing this um, thing about my grand—it's not even my grandmother. So <laughs> it's an interesting conversation. So the whole section in the chapter one that explores longing from a grandma's from longing for a grandmother, right? And I see empathy is a powerful thing, right? Through the channel of empathy, I realized you are able to embody characters and body feelings you probably never experience okay so what i realized was that when i began writing there's this age-old writing advice write what you know and that's what i went by i used to write what i knew and experienced but then i realized that when you are able to channel empathy you can embody characters and embody realities that are not of your own you become like an actor embodying um various characters from different socioeconomic backgrounds from different you know ideologies which may be very different from yours right but then i, I think the whole idea of longing is that we all have things and people we are deeply attached to. We all have things we are attached to. And absence makes the heart grow fonder. And whenever we get to points where we lose, you know, those things. So for you, it may not be your grandmother, but for you, it could be, it could even be, um, a talent. For example, for singers, singers love their voices. When they go through periods where they cannot 
sing or they have a sore throat or the voice isn't you know flowing as it should there's that longing that's that there's that longing for what you um what you have or what you encode hard so the idea of longing is is reaching is reaching deeply for that reality that you miss is reaching for that that piece of sanity safety that you that was comfortable that was very much a part of your reality and that you seek to relive exactly so and i think that's that's an idea that runs through the book that i you know want to i want to dignify you know um the relationships characters or people have with women and with old women as well with with sages in that sense yeah there is a line a series of lines i mean um i'll call it a phrase i guess i guess you were from what i understand trying to reflect on when the journey become successful you said when it comes together i want to read it for our audience he said i often wonder what it will look like when all my blessings manifest when everything all fits together i am so lashed onto destination i am forgetting about the beauty of this journey i'm going to be productive in this brokenness creative in my pain housing rib tickling laughter just gonna goddamn live consume heapfuls of austere summer air and tend my soul like an emerald garden springing to life at a stroke of gleaming dawn what were you thinking about when you're writing this yeah so the struggle like the, i guess that's beauty in the struggle for me i'm very goal oriented so um you often are overworking yourself to get to your goal and between the conception of the idea and the realization of that idea there's this whole tension and this challenge and most it's something i struggle with right enjoying the journey to my goal is something i struggle with and i felt like i wanted to express that that for every individual who is struggling for every individual that has a goal a dream and is reaching to it right there's beating the struggle and we, we all need to get to a place where we can lean into it. It's something I, I feel at daily, but I keep reminding myself. It's a lesson to myself that, and you know, David, like we haven't reached the ultimate, but we, we get to enjoy this, that no matter the challenges, no matter the trauma of the past, the can we have today, we have 24 hours. What are we going to do today? What, what are we going to do today and enjoy, you know, doing that will take us to tomorrow? Not just do it, not just bone through the day, not just the rigor of the day, but what can we do to enjoy the journey, you know, to the destination? That's what it's mostly about. Yeah. I mean, that's quite interesting. Funny enough, Isaac, I noted down the, the same passage because... Um, I kind of felt like you had two sides. Now, I think based on your answer, I can understand it a bit better because I wasn't sure on which side of the fence you are, but it seems probably you are goal-oriented and you keep reminding yourself because I put down two other things. There was one about, um, I think, the mother. She's been breaking her back. Um, mm -hmm. Pain gives her purpose. Yeah, but when yeah. the purpose become an unbearable um, pain... Exactly. I, yeah. And um yeah. yeah and um it was also i mean 
it struck me as I was wondering, um, yeah, kind of where it came from. What? Okay. Did yeah. okay? Did you feel that they contradicted each other? Not, not necessarily, but I, I felt like, um, yeah, I mean, there is two sides of, in general. Not, I'm not pointing at one particular place, but throughout the writings in different, even across different uh, chapters of books. Okay, parts, okay. Uh, where um, I could see that, that thing of goal orientation versus, um, how do you express that? It's kind of the pros, like the the journey, is the objective. Yeah, the yeah, in the yeah. Okay, versus okay. The yeah, yeah. Okay, that's that's interesting. So the thing about um, breaking her back, um, that part was about the mental health of our mothers. It's something that I I feel strongly about. That you know, our mothers or women, they they literally break their back to take care of us. I mean, the exceptions definitely, but um, generally. Our mothers break up their back to take care of us too. And I feel like women overcompensate. I feel like there's always um, women, I feel like mothers need to take care of themselves just as much as they take care of their children. I see it so many times. I see it all the time. You know, mothers always super stressed, taking care of their children, putting themselves last. And I understand they're loving, but if you read the book, you'd realize that I feel like mothers need to take care of themselves better. Now I speak to my friend um, about this issue a lot. And, you know, she, she talks about the fact that her mom, you know, just works herself, works herself so much so that, you know, getting to old age or getting to old age, she is sickly. And I feel like mothers need to take better care of themselves so that it could help even in their kids' lives. Because when you overwork yourself and you're overstressed and sickly, it's not going to benefit anybody. So it's, a, it's something I feel strongly about. And so that, in contrast to, not in contrast, but that in tandem with the whole idea of um, enjoying the journey, it's all about balance. It's all about balance. Um, so for example, mothers, love what they do taking care of their kids so love that enjoy your journey of taking care of your child but at the same time take care of yourself give yourself periods of rest do self-care so that you can be of better assistance to your kids and a better vessel and a better um, expression of love healthy expression so you can even tell a better narrative through your actions to your kids that they do they do get to take care of themselves even on their journey of taking care of those that they love as they grow up so that's the whole idea behind you know these two these two pieces so do you think that that is a particularly African thing. Is it something that we romanticize the stress of the mother almost as if we crown it, we heroize it, but insofar as you want to appreciate it, you want us to detach um, the romanticism you want us to detach it from the stress because we shouldn't, we shouldn't romanticize the stress. The stress is pain. No matter how they seem to want to enjoy it, it comes back to hurt them. How do you think that the narrative of how we construct what a mother is in the African sense, um, incentivize that behavior in our mothers, but also eventually, you know, break them down? Hmm. 
yeah it it does break them down which is which is something that i explored that you know in the book you'd see that the mother or the depiction of the mother is she spent like hair she spent her hair is you know tied in a bun sweats all over and and then in the character the mother then begins to get angry because that's that's usually what happens when you when um as a normal human being you begin to give too much of yourself and you know to some to someone you get to point it it gets unhealthy when you know it reaches certain points and then you are angry you're almost angry it gets to points where you're like you're not helping me out you're not helping me out i'm doing everything you're not helping me out you know that's when it gets unhealthy and it's something that happens a lot in a lot of homes you know where you know women or mothers reach certain points of exhaustion and stress and then those expressions come out i'm doing everything and you're not helping me i'm doing everything and you're helping me and so i feel like that we just need to encourage mothers you, you just take care of yourselves you know just um take time out for yourselves because in the long run it would help make the home a better place and will help you because we love you we love our mothers we adore our mothers and so we want them to take care of themselves so like you mentioned you said the narrative the narrative of mothers overworking themselves and the narrative of mothers overworking themselves um i don't think it's talked about okay i don't have facts to prove that but from where i stand i feel like it's a reality we observe it's a reality we observe but it's a reality that i haven't really seen a lot of discussions about in the public space about the mental health of our mothers about mothers overextending themselves for their kids about mothers truly taking time out to um take care of themselves and I, so i feel like generally the narrative um we must be able to incorporate such discussions in the public space <laughs> why do i get the feeling that even in even in discussing these issues um if we could because i know one of the things that lots of mothers um suffer from is guilt because we have to understand that a lot of mothers are also workers and they take care of the work as well as taking care of the home you know and so there's a lot of guilt that mothers also go through from um working long hours and not being able to see their kids and so i i really understand when mothers overextend and give themselves over to their children when they when they do but we need to um begin having these conversations you know in the public space for women to express themselves and for women to um advocate for you know the mental health of our mothers it's a very important topic okay so i want you to interface all that you've just said and the reality of okay. motherhood in the african setting with the reality of okay. fatherhood right how because you're okay. a little bit of that how do you what is the cross-section of that reality and how does that differ in your perspective oh, okay 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 so from from where i stand um it seems so from where i stand it seems that um that it's a bit tipped it's a bit tipped the the skill in my opinion is a bit tipped so i feel like um there are lots of responsible fathers as well and that's even another conversation for another day 
the whole narrative of you know um mothers because of their sacrifice and all of that being celebrated and we have a lot of fathers not being celebrated and another and that's another conversation for another day but i feel like it's a bit tipped and um, because mothers um and fathers the dynamic of um taking care of you know kids you know that when children children you know babies are attached to their mothers they live in their mother's bellies and all of that so mothers are close mothers from the onset mothers are close to their kids from the onset mothers are attached to their kids from the onset mothers are taking care of their kids you know from the african setting so from but i would like to say modern society is evolving right so we cannot use the whole construct of okay father goes to work and mother stays home to take care of the child because the modern african society is changing or has changed the so modern parenting is changing as well but I think all I have realized is that, or all I wanted to focus on, because I didn't focus on fatherhood, I focused on motherhood based on the things I have seen and experienced, right? But I think all that I realized was that mothers overcompensate, they, they overgive, they overgive to their, um, to their stress and their stress and all of that. So I wouldn't want to express, you know, the whole thing about fatherhood because I don't have a lot of, what's the word? I don't have a lot of um, factual information to give to that regard, as, especially as modern society is evolving, right? Right. So, yeah, I think that's, that's... You know, you hint, and I like that, you hint around the hierarchies in, in inequality. You know, all inequalities are not baked equally. All inequalities are not baked equally. And you hint at that in a very beautiful way. I want you to read this out. Dear plus size female influencer is it easy for you to say love yourself when you are fat in all the right places there is privilege even amongst fat people can you expand on that okay so this is i remember when i posted this i think i I posted this on my status and i had a lot of girls sending me you know dms you know with hmm Hmm. 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 You know that kind of. So I. So I felt like I hit a, a strike a chord with a lot of women. Um. So that whole piece was because there's a lot of. So. F- so there are hierarchies in society. There's the. Um. Every so when it comes to discussions about desirability for bodies, it differs for every man. But we can all agree that there are certain bodies that are more desirable than that are perceived as more desirable than others. At least per societal perso- constructs, exactly. exactly. Yeah, per societal constructs, exactly. So, for example, we have um, um for the African setting, we have luxurious bodies, and we have um, you know, lots of men as well, like skinny um skinny bodies as well but we have um fat bodies or big bodies being at the bottom of the rank right but then within even that there's this privilege right so it's something you'd even realize with um a lot of um there were i can't there was a model that came up when it came to these discussions about fashion and everything that she was a plus size model but a lot of people were I've forgotten her name, but a lot of people were mentioning that she had the right proportions, even though she was plus sized. Her face, she had the right proportions, her body had the right proportions and everything. And so when Tess, I think she's a popular, came 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 around and and she was quite the opposite of that. People 
Of course, it was a nuanced conversation, but a lot of people felt like it was a more accurate reflection or depiction. There are lots of women that, um, per discussions I've had, you know, do not feel like, you know, they belong, you know, per societal constructs of beauty. And that whole piece about their plus size influencer was that, um, there's privilege and plus size women who are who have the right proportions, plus size women who have a lobsters need to realize that they do have privilege. They do have privilege. And and fat phobia definitely affects them to a certain degree, but it cannot be compared to um someone else who doesn't have the right proportions as the beauty standards would have them, even as a big person. So that was what um that piece sought to, you know, portray that even in there's this hierarchy even in even in low spaces or even in discriminatory spaces or even in um spaces that are not um even in spaces that are not leveled out there's hierarchy and i think we all need to recognize that privilege even for me speaking i know um it might seem a bit a lot of feminists might you know not be completely happy that you know i'm speaking because i'm a man and i recognize my privilege right it should be you do get that it should be a woman that should be articulating these things it should be a woman should be expressing her realities the whole idea is everyone should recognize his privilege and in all of that so i do recognize that and i inject that in my writing that we should all be cognizant of our privilege we should all be cognizant of the little things that we may look you know overlook you know in our advocacy in things that we do right so that's the whole idea I guess that's the reaction that you got from other people. <laughs> um, <laughs> one of the things that you explore is, I guess it's an intersection between poverty and religion. That, mm-hmm. you know, it's almost as if this is not spoken as much, but Africa's, African societies are particularly religious societies. It is part of the intertwining of our existence especially for that's the reality of most people. But again, mm-hmm. I am very interested in societal hierarchies. I, that's something I'm very passionate about. And we can see there again that there is societal hierarchies. There are hierarchies of who is favored amongst priests and all of that because of their mm-hmm. poor or because of any other thing, you know. It, it, it could, you know, if perhaps we even analyze it, it could be, be that in those hierarchies, even the reaction of people who are fat mm-hmm. um, and the expressionism in such public spaces are different. You wrote that mm-hmm. when I became fat, people started mm-hmm. treating me differently and all of mm-hmm. that. So, yeah. I mean, yeah. how does that even exist in those spaces where we are supposed to be all loving and all accepting? So, are you talking about the intersection of... Um inequalities with religion exactly okay okay so i think that um the religious space i'm christian right so and but there are certain things the fact that i'm christian does not mean that i will not be in fact the fact that i'm christian should mean that i should speak the truth and i should be open about these things i feel like christianity um sometimes not a lot of times is is problematic 
and religion let me let me use my words choose my words carefully religion 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 the religious co um, construct can be problematic because a lot of people come to um, church for respite lots of people come to church to be edified and all of that but lots of the things that i've observed is that lots of people who have low socioeconomic backgrounds are not as valued or lots of people who may not be as gifted who may not sing or play instruments or things like that are not as appreciated because they do not contribute you know immensely to um the the running of of the construct religion you know let me say that so that's the piece sought to you know bring out that reality so i see that um there are people who you know there's this character that's observing people in their expensive garb with their babies thick perfumes and walking all the way back home and then pastors drive away in suvs it's a very controversial topic but it's something that we need to explore the idea that one people come because they need help and whenever you begin to feel like you are not valuable to um an entity because you lack something that's where the problem emerges and so that's what i wanted to explore that um things need to change we need to be more embracing that's not to say there are so many churches doing amazing work right this is pointing out nuance so there are lots of um churches doing amazing work and helping out but this is something i observed as well in certain places that lack you know that sort of um that that lack that sort of outreach and love to people that are at the bottom exactly so that's uh -huh. i think you mentioned something about um fat phobia what could you just remind me of what you mentioned about fat phobia so i include that in what i'm saying yeah i mean uh, how we even see people like that in our churches right like what the commentary that we give um that the okay. hierarchies of privilege in body size okay okay even okay in those okay 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 so when i wrote about fat food i think i wasn't exploring it from yeah. just the church yeah, construct definitely. that was like a broader yeah. societal construct mm -hmm. exactly so and that i will not tag as a church thing to you know shame bigger people it's a broader societal thing and so yeah that is it's a reality it's a reality and because i think being honest about the whole thing right I have a personal personal experiences, you know, after after um after uni no sorry yeah after after high school, you know, gaining some weight and all of that, that was a point I wanted to, you know, employ that you new know, fat phobia doesn't just affect women, it affects men as well, right? And you know, people make derogatory comments, people say all sorts of nasty things and you'd realize that when you gain weight in a society, you begin to feel that the, syn the synonym for fat is ugly. You begin to feel that those words are synonyms. You begin to feel that they are one. And those are some of the realities I wanted to explore in the book. You know, that, and that's a lot of people go through these things. And like 
I mentioned throughout this whole discussion, it's a call to empathy for everybody. You know, we have morbidly obese people. We look at them and we're like, oh, he lets himself go. Oh, he's horrible. And we see all sorts of horrible things. But there's there so many nuances. The fact that you see someone that's bigger does not mean that the person, people, you need to come with empathy for someone who's struggling with food addiction. But there are so many people who are big and it's not because of food addiction it's not because they love food in fact it's quite the opposite for some people they do not eat as as much but people are on meds people are going through different um treatments people are going through um several complications with their health and it affects the way they look and society will punish you for the way you look you know, part of the whole inequalities and everything. Society will punish you for the way you look. So it's a horrible story for you. And we also need to factor in nuance as well. For example, males who struggle with weight gain and females who struggle with weight gain and all of that. We have to be honest and say that beauty standards are tougher or harsher on women. So for example, even in the workplace or people working in media, music, you know, men may catch some flack for their looks, but it cannot be compared to the pressure that women have to face for the way they look. And so if a woman is working in media, a woman is a musician and she doesn't look the part and she doesn't have pretty privilege, it's going to work against her. People are going to see all sorts of derogatory things which can affect mental health, can affect, you know, her space, her head space, and even can translate into, you know, dragging her career or derailing her in her career. So these are or conversations and you know nuances that we need to you know explore and talk about and muse over and tackle as a society that Charlie we need to get to a place where we can be able to understand beyond our reality, beyond what we know and engage people. Like I, I always say we need to engage people, we need to engage culture and we need to engage and to engage we need to listen. And not just accept things as we see them to be exactly so that these are some of the things that i'd say in that regard okay my last question to you is that how do we bring people to the acceptance of themselves mm. how do we bring people to accept themselves well self-acceptance is a journey it's a journey and um how do we bring them to accept? It's a journey. It's a journey everybody has to go through. Um, I think it's a journey that's smoother for others and it's a journey that's tougher for others because of um, societal restrictions and things like that. But I think self-acceptance, it will take time. It will take every individual being honest with himself or herself and going on a journey of that self-acceptance or self-love you know in the book i explore some of these things and i and i mentioned that for certain people even when it comes to weight gain and weight loss we mostly feel like okay i'm going to accept myself when i lose the weight so i'm going to accept myself when i look a certain way or you know or feel a certain way but sometimes you may you know it's a hard it's it's a hard journey to that place you know and i advocate that 
you know if everybody can get to a place where you can you know love yourself even in your journey of weight loss love yourself wherever you are in your journey even if it's not weight loss even if it's an insecurity you have fine but it for me personally i feel like i'm coming to a place where i'm realizing that there can be neutrality as well where self-acceptance would mean that okay i might not be at a place where i'm like okay i love myself i rock and but I can be like, okay, this is what I have. This is my vessel. This is what God gave me. I will work with you. And I will not let my ideas or I'm not going to let my insecurities ruin where I'm headed. So for me, self-acceptance looks like, okay, this is what we are working with, right? This is what I have, right? If freckle is here, I don't like it. Chin is double, double chin. I don't like but you. This is what I have. And this is what I'm going to work with. So that's what self-acceptance for me looks like. And I feel like as a society, sometimes the whole message of self-love, it can be a bit overbearing. It can be a bit overbearing because it puts so much pressure on people. And when they do not feel like they've reached that place of self-love, they end up feeling regretful. They feel, what's the word? They feel guilty. They feel like they are, you know, just rowing against um a tempest and nothing is changing so that's what i'd like to say is for everybody who is and i am on that journey we all are on that journey of self-acceptance you can get to a place where you're like you this is this is what i have it may not be exactly what i feel like is ideal by society but this is what i have and i work with it and nothing is going to stop me from getting to where i'm supposed to get to even my ideas of insecurity yeah Hmm. That's a beautiful response to it. I mean, what I picked up from that especially is that in the journey, sometimes, and perhaps I'm picking my words very well, but sometimes it is okay not to love yourself and stay with it till you eventually come to it. Because in those moments where you are making the journey, you would feel like you are not enough and you would mm-hmm. get there. But you are getting mm-hmm. there. And if yeah. you are not there, it is fine. Yeah, yeah, it's fine. Like, it's it's so fine. It's so fine. If Like, if you are not there yet, it's so fine. It's so fine. But it gets it gets better when you reach. I, I'm learning. I'm learning on my journey that I don't need everything to be perfect for me to pursue what I what I what I have to do. I don't need to feel like I have overcome every fear. I have overcome every insecurity before I step forward to do what I feel like I'm supposed to do. So here's what you can do. You can just sit back and be like, okay, I feel fear here. Sit by me, fear. I feel insecurity here. Sit by me. We're going to go together in this. And I might be shaking like crazy as I sit here for whatever I feel like is my dream. But man, I'm going to sit with it and I'm not going to run back. I'm going to do it afraid. I'm going to do it with whatever and we'll get to our destination. And in that whole, you know, it's, it's, it's doing it afraid. And that's, that's where I feel like the courage is because that's what stops us. That's what stopped me because you feel like you feel like you want to overcome everything, everything before you move forward. You'd be waiting forever to overcome every fear. So you decide that I'm going to do it afraid. I feel down. I feel whatever, but I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. And that is courage. And that is 
taking the bull by the horn and saying that we're going to achieve whatever we've set out to achieve and it's going to help humanity and it's going to move society forward yeah okay um so okay so my last question goes more towards i mean you mentioned when you came to the beauty like the the beauty standard the construct of society okay so okay, okay i would like to understand what how do you see like how many of some of these things be, be it hierarchy standards inequalities mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. are um yeah kind of social constructs versus versus mm-hmm. certain aspects just being kind of i don't know how best to describe it being human nature is there mm, yeah I what do you mean by being human nature um like maybe I, i'm asking whether you see certain parts not now with the beauty standards but in general whether you see certain aspects that could contribute to hierarchy inequalities or standards that are not necessarily a social construct but are even like when i say hum, human nature basically inherit individually in, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, within us mm-hmm. so which means then of course you can still have a discourse and a conversation and empathy but that change would be once it goes it once it would be more of i don't know how to describe it embedded individually in people like more biology then, okay yeah more biology that's what okay exactly what i meant with human nature okay i think yes but i think the whole thing about human nature and beauty standards and all of that is that the thing about beauty is beauty is contextual right so beauty is contextual it depends on what i consider beautiful per my own desire you know as a man is very different maybe very different from what you you know consider beautiful so for example you said human um, or biology so um that whole idea about human humanity and biology is also very contextual because the whole idea of sexuality is also contextual everything is contextual but i think where the whole thing about humanity meeting a societal standard is society is made up of various individuals right but then the sustainability standard is the prevailing the prevailing idea out of you know these humans and what we realize is that um so even though the beauty standard exists so biologically there will be so many people that not so many but there will obviously be people that deviate from that so if the beauty standard now as the beauty standard now may be voluptuous women there are still lots of men who contextually or individually prefer something different or biologically prefer something different right but then i feel like the whole biology thing it feeds into the whole societal thing as well because societally um it's the prevailing and it changes right the prevailing ideas right that consistently change so for example in the past um for example in the past in you know um culture you'd have certain various cultures you'd have certain standards being upheld and it's because of this it's because of the individuals within that society and what they prefer for example in certain societies having preferring long necks and you know with the rings and that's beautiful for them you know or for certain societies in the past where it was primarily skinny you know skinny women and it's evolved with the Kim K revolution and things like that but it's but I think the whole thing is various individuals as well that have their preferences or preferences and when 
they have their preferences. The beauty ideal is the general, you know, prevailing idea that every everybody is judged against. Yeah. Yeah, it's exactly. So to, to say or to pin down and be like, okay, so even though there's a, like a general beauty standard, to pin down and say, okay, this is what every man would prefer. That's that's disingenuous, right? It's insincere because every man, even as against the beauty standard, would have his or her preference. Every individual would have a preference. Yeah. So biology. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I agree. I agree. Unfortunately, I think I chose the worst. The worst example when I was pointing at privilege by mentioning the beauty standard, but I think okay, yeah, but yeah, I mean I definitely agree with what you said. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. W- w- let me just give you the space to give your last words. I mean, I would want you to talk about what you hope your writing will inspire. Tell us where people can get your book, and what we should expect from you. Okay. Um. So I I wrote Kissing Memory to Skin in 2020. Um. A time where the world was grappling with, you know, I think we still are, but coronavirus and the whole um, lockdown season, and you know, I think I wrote it. it was It was a book that I wrote, um, to inspire people to bring everybody, you know around the table and be like let's hear multiple stories so it's an expansive book right and it explores various characters struggling through various things so there are expressions of people like we mentioned mental health people struggling with fat phobia people struggling with gender sexuality things like that and to say that let's gather everybody around the table and let's tell these stories let's gather everybody there are even stories of incarceration there are stories of people of changing the narrative about black people you know their stories their stories are expansive their stories exploring a host of issues so it's the whole idea is me gathering Ghanaian characters you know huddling around the fireside and being like let's let's hear each other out and let's 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 hear our stories and together let's heal and so I'd just like to encourage everyone the book is on Amazon it's Kissing Memory into Skin by David A-G-Y-E-I-Y-E-B-O-A-H. Yeboah. It's on Amazon. Can I put out my number? Is that okay? Yeah, you can. So people... Okay, okay. So my number is 055-7027-581. So that... um, Apart from the Amazon option, there's also the mobile money option where the book could be, you know, sent to email as well. So back to what i was saying it's just to encourage everybody let's 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 get on a journey together let's expose what's happening in the dark let's let's heal as a society together and let's move to a place of higher consciousness and and heal and be better and achieve our dreams and make the world a better place you know so I think that's that's what I'd like to leave your your listeners with. That there's hope. The message is like there's hope for you. There's hope for you in the dark. There's hope for you as you are as you may be struggling with whatever you are struggling with in the dark and feel like you have no one to talk to. You have no one to listen to, or you feel like you're gaslighted, or you feel like when you are trying to express your pain, people do not understand, or you feel like when you're trying to express yourself. No one quite gets it. Sometimes your family don't even get it. Sometimes your friends don't even get it. But the book is here to encourage you, or I'm here to encourage you that there is hope for you. 
and there is help if only you reach out you know and you can heal so that's the message of the book and hope you grab a copy and send my number hope we get talking so kissing memory into skin there's a question that i should have asked but i'm not going to ask because i think that you make that discovery when you read the book what does kissing memory into skin mean yeah but when you read the book i'm sure you're going to make that discovery for yourself we have been here with a soulful very introspective very detailed very complicated very experimental writer david aj yaboa who's from ghana and this has been the Change Africa podcast where we interview very brilliant people as always and we are interacting with them and we are interrogating the ideas about very complicated issues in Africa. And today the discussion has been around mental health, as phobia, around the hierarchies in privilege, around the hierarchies in underprivileged, around a lot of things that are not talked about, mental trauma, parenthood, motherhood, gender, sexuality, etc. As always, um you can get us anywhere you listen to your podcast but this has been a great privilege with me myself Isaac Kujude Noaboa and Daniel Merki and again thank you very much David for being on the podcast thanks for having me it was amazing thank you too